Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Manhood Simplified podcast. I'm Ayanda Nyati. And you know, with each installment that we give you, we try to unpack an aspect of masculinity in this country. And hopefully, the conversations we have here will be a springboard for the discussions that you can have wherever you're listening to us from. Today, we're hoping to speak about violence and masculinity in this country. How well are we doing in tackling things like femicide and gender-based violence? And to help us unpack those issues, I'm joined by Jabu Baloi. He is, of course, the spokesperson of the Commission for Gender Equality, and it's Lovely to have you with us, sir. Thanks very much indeed for speaking to us. Very quickly, speak to our audience. Tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, thank you, Ayanda. My name is Jabu Baloi, spokesperson for the Commission for Gender Equality. Gender Equality is a chapter nine institution. We deal with issues of um, women empowerment, issues of toxic masculinity, issues of traditional religious practices that are inconsistent with the constitution of the Republic of South Africa. We are independent in mind and execution. We do our job without fear and favor. We raise our report to Parliament and very like-minded institutions. Um, we um, deal with the issues of accountability. However, we're not an implementing agency. That's where the, uh, the uh, misnomer at times happens to say, what is it that the Gender Commission is doing? And we give this report to relevant de department. And I'm glad the topic of today is one that you know, we have also put budget aside to ensure that you know, we engage men and boys insofar as toxic masculinity and men and boys in our society. That's in, in a nutshell that we do as a Commission for Gender Equality. Very comprehensive. Thanks very much indeed for that. Let's start on one of the issues you've just pointed out, uh, Jabu, and that is to do with you know, the Commission itself not being an implementing agency. In what ways does that hamper the ability for you to at least see through the recommendations you make in your findings? Ayanda, it hampers us a lot because, you know, we depend on someone else to do what, we, uh, what it's expected of them to be done. Uh, we just released a report called uh, looking at the government's response on, on issues of gender-based violence and, 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 and femicide in the country. We came up with a, a very devastating um, uh, report and the findings were very appalling. Is then that uh, departments, NPA, women ministry, uh, and uh, presidents and SAPS, after the fact that they said, no, you got the wrong information, you shouldn't have been given this information. Now they're starting to, say, to, to, to scratch the, the, the straws. And it is wrong, because we were, we were meant to be given information from the wet go that will help South Africa, because we do understand these issues. Like now we went to the field throughout the nine provinces to look at what is it that the barrier in the police stations and the Tutuzela Care Center, that is making it, you know, the, the, the statistics. Remember in the last reporting quarter, three reporting quarters, almost 10,000 women were raped in South Africa. And those are those that have reported, not those that have lost uh, trust in the justice system. And we depend on the SAPS, we depend on the other uh, government departments and civil society, those that are implementers, to do what they're supposed to do. And parliamentarians also, because when they're given these reports, they need to hold those departments accountable. What are you doing, SAPS, with the backlogs on, uh, on DNA tests? Yeah. What are you doing, um, uh, Women Ministry, in terms of women empowerment? What are you doing, um, the COCTA? on issues of a boy child in the, going to the mountains in the Eastern Cape in Pompompomalanga. Yeah. Those are the things that, you know, certain us that, you know, we have got this wonderful report lying up there. Uh, we understand it's supposed to be movement, but, you know, the movement is not there. It's so interesting you say that because other studies have shown that a lot of the time before any criminal decides on whether or not to commit a crime, yes. they want to ascertain how possible it is for them to be found. From what you are saying, you know, there are men out there, perhaps, who know that there are great reports gathering dust somewhere on shelves, 
and because they know that there won't be any consequences for their actions, they go ahead and they commit the abuses. I mean, to what extent do you think that's accurate? It's very much accurate. People are acting with impunity because nothing happens to them. Mm. Uh, they know that, you know, the DNA test also uh, hampers the system. Go to Togoza Magistrate Court now. You will see that, you know, 20, 25, uh, uh, 25 cases of GBV, serious GBV case, they are going to be taken off the roll because they, we don't have DNA tests. The inconsistencies, you know, someone can be, look at the Oscar Pistorius case, look at the Vumile Jezile in Cape Town. Somebody can be arrested for a, a very serious deed, but be given something like a lenience of five, five years. They know, Ayana, they will even phone you from prison, uh, these prisoners. They will say, Javo, when you call for 25 years, wow. we are grateful because we are going to study. We are going to have a nice life. They have cell phones. They have got uh, smart TVs. They are, you know, even the police commissioner, the deputy police commissioner, how thing, Tomim Tomben, said the other day, I don't know whether he heard himself when he was saying, it's easier for, it's, it's safer in prison than being outside in South Africa. So that's why some of these things, you know, it's what we do, the willingness. It's true, it's accurate. People, they know that there's nothing that's going to happen to them. The case will be under control. They will postpone, postpone. They will challenge it, and they're out. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we, our, our, our judicial system needs to, to self-correct. With that in mind, then, I mean, what kind of messaging do you take on as a Chapter 9 institution? And I guess it's worth reminding those who are with us what Chapter 9 institutions are actually there for. It's essentially bodies that are meant to act independently, yes. look out for the ordinary South African, yeah. and are meant to be accessible, right? In a context where it feels that even you are becoming disillusioned about whether or not the work you are doing is, can lead to material change, how do you begin to try galvanize the masses, so to speak, to at least listen to what you have to say? Yeah, what, what would you do accurately and good? It's, you know, the outgoing, the, the, the um, SAPS, National Police Commissioner. We have subpoenaed them three times, uh, even the, new, the incoming um, um, uh, police commissioner. Police com we subpoenaed them three times yeah. because we want to be, restore people's faith. You know, it, I am, you'll be shocked that, you know, people will phone you at 11 o'clock at night. They say, we're going to the police station, but we just want to let the gender commission know. Because should we not, in, in, not involve, nothing is going to be done. And it's only then when we get to, to, to get to the police station and we say, we know there's this case, we are following up through this case. It's when people start acting. Do they have to act when a Chapter 9 social, a Human Rights Commission has to come, a public protector of the Gender Commission? That's, it's, are, they, is, are they passionate enough to save uh, some of these people uh, within the police? And also this issue of capacity. Mm -hmm. Remember, some of them, the police officers, are criminals uh, based on their own records. Yeah. And some of them, they can't write affidavits, some of them. You go to the police station now, I they will tell you, write an affidavit so that we can sign. They can't even read it back to you. And that, those are the things that, you know, they need to look. And I'm, I'm glad uh, uh, Mr. Masimula is speaking the language that we understand as a commission. Maybe so our statement beforehand to say uh, DNA backlogs, you know, is going to build capacity. We are working with them. We're not only criticizing them, but we are helping to build capacity. Imagine a novice from a training college in Pretoria taken to investigate a serious gender-based violence case. You might even have had the day before yesterday. Indikawa has won a case. Uh, the minister of police is going to be liable for that case. Yeah. So at the constitutional court, you know. The, oh, but I mean, to be fair, that yes. case, by the way, took years. Yes. No, she and, came to us too. Exactly. And yeah. a lot of money as well. Yes. Right? It also speaks to 
What about the people who don't have the time or the money? Exactly. It means, you know, justice for those who have got money. Justice shouldn't be had. It should be seen to be done for everyone mm. else. You know, regardless of the position that you occupy in society. And that's, that's where we're fighting for as a commission. For When we have got our legal officers and um, um, uh, education officers going to the ground. I went to Hamaskral a month ago. Um, it's, it's number one in terms of gender-based violence statistics uh, in, in the country. When you, you, you look at the police, you know, they are this, they, 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 you know what? There's a sadness in, in their face when you look at them. They are engaging. They said we're supposed to have been three times the number. We're looking at the vast area. There are 283 now. Mm -hmm. They're saying we're supposed to look at that. You look at it also because we don't understand from a distance. We see police being failures. The police vans are broken down. You know, some of them, you know, you go to them, the attitude, the secondary victimization. You look at the issue of uh, Omotoso in the, in the Eastern Cape. Yeah. Uh, you look at the issue of, um, we were criticizing as much as normally people welcome judgment. We criticized the police recently on Tsokofato police case. Um, that, that case could have, Ayanda, could have been prosecuted within six months. Mm. They had all the evidence. They had all the information. Why prolong things and make people suffer? When you know that, you know, why Oscar Pistorius was prosecuted within six months? You know, the, the funny part with the police, they will have this wonderful task team. When the task team is successful, it looks like it's, they dismantle them. Yeah. It's like, you know, they hate something successful. It's interesting you say that because some people believe it's because there's an interest in seeing those successful task teams with a short lifespan. But I want to steer us yes. to speaking about what this podcast is actually aiming to do, yes. which is to at least move hearts and minds, maybe of men, but also of those who interact with men, yeah. to think differently about how they, I guess, take on their expression of masculinity. Yes. So let me start here. The understanding of gender in this country, do you think it's moving with the times or evolving as quick as it needs to, do, to move? Because gender in perhaps, let's say, any ordinary community involves male or female. Yes. But those who are in the spaces that I'm sure you frequent will know that it extends beyond that. Yeah, it, it extends beyond that. Yeah. Normally, as men, uh, including myself, uh, let me not put myself outside. Yeah. We think when we talk gender, we talk about women. Uh, we talk gender, we talk about issues of LGBTI. We leave men behind, we leave a boy child outside. Hence, the Gender Commission, don't, we don't do a take a girl child to work. We, t we say take a child to work, mm. both boys and, men, uh, and girls, so that they get to understand. We, we, we have got, you know, the mindset of a man in South Africa, it's somehow slowly but surely changing. I always say, I under to people outside there, um, men are not agent provocateurs of, uh, at, uh, most of the times. The problem part is us as men, we are idiots in responding. We do not know how to respond to provocations. Um, we are not the ones who start violence. And people think that I bash men, that you know, men are trash and men are this and this. No, it's not true. We are saying, let's shift the mindset. When we, we, we must grow up to extend to say, when you are being provoked inside the household, what do you do? We don't have social intelligence as men to deal with it. You, you, you need to walk away. And those are the things that makes men think that, you know, when we come hard on them, we write statements, we talk on various platforms about men uh, being not responsible, men I. You know, the anger that is embodied in within us as men somehow need to be demystified and engage men in it. We have assisted a lot of men as a commission to say, uh, those that have lost their job now, jobs now, we have referred them some to psychologists to say, look, when you're at home, you have got that wife who's working or partner. I always say, Ayanda, uh, a woman can stay with a woman until 100 years, a woman not working. A woman cannot stay with a man for 100 years without a man working. Mm. 
Uh, it's the way it's our society has uh, shaped us to think that, you know, it's a man's role to provide for the family. We don't take help. You know, we throw tantrums, you rather take somebody's life within the household because, you know, you feel that you are not, you are less of a man. And also these women will also say at times, Ayanda, will tell the kids that, look, tell your father when he wakes up, you mustn't touch the yogurts. The yogurts are meant for you, it's not waking. You know, some of these things that are happening on TikToks, we follow them, we look at them and say, yes, this is true. At times, men, it's, it's, it's being judged uh, very harshly by society. And we need to remove the anger that is in a man. Sure. We need to also, this upbringing and socialization of a, a boy child at a young age. Yeah, that's exactly where I was hoping to go. I mean, you've touched on a whole variety of things there. Um, some broad statements, but I get the spirit in which you make them. Yes. Um, matters of men feeling emasculated yes. right, within the house. But also, you spoke about emotional intelligence. How do we get that right in a context where, according to stats, I say, only about a third of specifically young black boys in this country are being raised by their biological fathers? That being said, we have got programs in this country. Uh, there are a lot of men, NGOs, and Department of Social Development where they mentor a boy child. There are a lot of programs, you know, Trekker has got a program also. What we, we, we're failing to do, and it, all of us, uh, it's we're not exploiting the opportunity of life orientation within basic education. And life orientation has been criticized so widely, though. No, no, that's one of the best subjects that, you know, we can engage these kids. The teachers that are being sent to do life orientation, we need to build capacity for them. It is us, the Gender Commission, the Human Rights Commission. We're working closely with basic education. But some of those teachers have already come out to say that they're not comfortable with teaching, for instance, about LGBT issues because of their own religious affiliation. Get, 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 yes, get those that are passionate to do the job and work within the space. Because in a school, in a normal school, you have got more than 15 teachers. Someone somewhere there has got the passion to work with the, with the kids. We have got these people who are studying ECD um, uh, uh, courses, curriculum at universities and um, um, colleges. Those are the people I know that we can use, that can also build capacity. We know majority of the households in South Africa are women households. I was listening to a radio station now where a father is coming back to a someone's life after 30 years. And the mother, you know what the mother said? It's up to you, my son, whether you want to have a relationship with your father or not. As for me, I give you my blessing. Mm -hmm. And the man said, you know, the, the guy is coming to my life because I'm successful in so many magazines. Those are the stories that we can use. When we, that story, uh, I'm, I'm going to follow it through because it, it was very interesting while I was driving coming here. So that, you know, we understand, you know, some of the challenges that the boy child goes go through. Uh, because, you know, you might find that you don't have a father, I end up with a father, we come to school, my dad is going to take me, you end up forming a fictitious, fictitious father in your mind, yeah. believing that the father is there. And those are the things that, you know, we're not saying and opening enough. Some of the life orientation teachers, I enjoy engaging with them. We have met with them at the basic education. We just need to build capacity for them. It shouldn't be, by the way, this life orientation. Do you understand what you are teaching these kids? Because the, the messages, because some of the, the boys, we talk about issues of uh, masturbation and others. Some of these boys, they see it through TikTok, we, have, mm. we buy them expensive gadgets. Mm. And then when they go to the class, you said, I don't want to teach these kids because of religious oath whatsoever. South Africa is not a religious state or a traditional state. We are a democratic state. A circular state. That a that, circular yeah. state, yes. And eventually what happens is that, you know, yes. the boys themselves, the blind lead the blind, as we say. Exactly. But, okay, as we round up our discussion, you know, um, one of the other things that you've already mentioned is a lot of the time you get criticized as being a mouthpiece for something like the Commission for Gender Equality. Yes. I'd guess that a lot of that criticism comes from men. Right? Yes. Who just don't understand what you do yes. and why it's important. How do we bring those men on board 
and make sure that a whole lot more people are as passionate as you are mm. in at least having a conversation about reimagining what being a man actually is. And I'll tell you that I'm the darling of men now. Those um, are, are, are being refused to, to, to see their kids. We have released a report to say a, a return when relations disentangled. Uh, where fathers are suffering the cause, you know, because but hell knows no fury like a woman's scorned. So those are being um, uh, uh, deprived of seeing, the, they are phoning me nonstop on Twitter saying, Gender Commission, you are, you are there for us fathers. You know, it, it just took that report to change the perception. But however, we need to sit men down. On Saturday, I was in Kelvin, uh, Kelvin outside Santin with the Department of Justice and other men. We were engaging men. What is it? Men are angry. Men, because of absent father, some of them is not absent, absent, uh, it's a present absent father. Okay, Inside the house, you know, you don't talk to the child, you don't engage with the child, you don't tell the child whether it's a puberty level, when it's masculinity, when it's this, you know, you, you just look at it. And you are there, you're reading newspapers, you don't take the child to the sports field. When the child, you know, talks to you, you know, say, I don't have your time, I'm busy. Can't you see I'm busy? All the time. But you tell people at the workplace that, you know, hey, my kids are the best, you know, I'm always with them. So those are the lessons that I left them there with, with those messages. What we need to do, we need to create a, a new man. A new, new man in all of us, a man who's sensitive. A man, we need to have role models. I, it doesn't help to say, um, I see you on TV. My kids said, oh, I under my role model. You're sitting there as a father. You need to ask yourself, why will the child say, I under my role model from a distance? What, what is it that you're doing wrong? Instead of getting angry, you need to, we need to introspect. Mm. We need to talk to men. I always say that in order to understand a man, talk to the man like a child. Because a man has that uh, Oedipus complex stage at times, you know, where we behave like kids. So that's the way to get to a man. And also, let, we must learn to listen. Because at times, I under, we, we, when somebody, you speak to me, you speak to me, I, I'm ready to respond. Instead of understanding what you're saying in order to respond, men need to be heard also. We need to tell men that, you know, they need to cry also. Emotions are there. When you are hurt, you are hurt. You cry. I always tell people, I went through a horrible divorce. And they were shocked when they looked at me. I said at the age of 30, I had it all. I had houses, I had everything. But when that divorce happened, as a man, I cried. I went to counseling. So at times, you know, we fool ourselves as men and give us wrong, wrong, wrong um, 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 advices. Yeah. You need to show emotions. You need to be who you are. You need to live for yourself and live in the moment and be, be, love yourself. The moment we, we hate ourselves as men, it's then that, you know, things fall apart. Yeah. A man without anything but with happiness and joy, that's a greater man to me. All right. It's on that bombshell that we're going to have to leave it. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us. And, of course, there's a whole lot more to be said. Yes. But I imagine, as I always say, hopefully we've started the conversation for you and you might be able to take it forward from wherever you are. Look out, by the way, for part two of this discussion. What we've done now is get you a sense of what a Chapter 9 institution involved in these topics is thinking. Hopefully, when we meet again in part two, we'll get you a sense of where we are legally in this country when it comes to responding to femicide and gender-based violence. Welcome back to the Manhood Simplified podcast, the show where we unpack the plethora of ways that toxic masculinity manifests itself in less than positive and meaningful ways in South Africa, with the idea being that the conversations that we have over the course of this show might inspire you to be the change that we need to see in South African society. My name is Gameli Shepovana, here to give you part two of the discussion that we've been having surrounding the relationship between toxic masculinity and the scourge of gender-based violence in South Africa. My colleague 
Eric Ayanda had a spirited discussion with uh, Mr. Jabu Baloy from the Commission for Gender Equality. And I'm here to explore the legal aspects of this conversation around the relationship between toxic masculinity and gender-based violence. And to help us provide his insight on this matter, it is an absolute pleasure at this time to welcome my guest, Advocate Manya Ma Moridima Manya. Um, Dr. thank you so much for joining us. If you could please take a moment to unpack the exact work that you do in this field through your capacity as a legal analyst. Thank you very much. I'm admitted as an advocate. I'm a practicing advocate. Uh, I regard myself as a human rights lawyer. I'm a former um, a public servant. I've been a head of the uh, Department of Agriculture in KwaZulu-Natal in my past life and twice in the province of Eastern Cape as the head of education. And I do quite a lot of public interest work and just normal legal work. Absolutely amazing stuff. Now, to unpack and perhaps contextualize the conversation that we've been having, a lot of conjecture has been made around the ways in which our country's criminal justice system has failed victims of gender-based violence, victims of sexual crimes, and victims of violence altogether. Can you talk us through the exact ways in which the law has to run its course when it comes to cases of rape, cases of gender-based violence in this country, and perhaps unpack why these processes take as much time as they do? Yeah, maybe we should go a bit backwards before we start to talk about the law and talk about the foundation of this whole problem of uh, 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 gender-based violence, where it actually originates from. And it's not a South African phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon. And you will recall that from time immemorial, somebody seems to have taken a decision that women will be subordinate. If you look at it from a religious point of view, the Bible itself seems to suggest that women are subordinate. And throughout you know, the course of humanity, women have never been equal. Uh, they've actually always been seen as objects. Now, there's this historical, and I think the, the proper dis description is probably to talk about the historical injustice against women, not only in terms of basic equality, but general equality. Women could not vote, didn't have authority. They were subjected to patriarchy, both European and African patriarchy. And this continue to define the relationship that society has with women, because society has also defined the type of roles that it believes women should play. For instance, in, in terms of how society defines issues, if you are married to a woman, you own her. If, if, if you want to sleep with her, you are entitled. It doesn't matter how she feels about it. And I think this is the evolution of this problem. Yes, in time, there has been a movement towards the recognition of the rights of women, but it's still a limited recognition because the actual foundation of uh, 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 inequality against women remains fully intact. Uh, women continue to remain subject to violence, whether in cases of war, and you could see in any event, any situation where there's been war, women and children would have been the most vulnerable and the worst victims uh, of that. But who are the perpetrators of this? It's, it's the male species. Of course, we must also understand that the system of patriarchy itself and what people claim to be cultural practices also makes women to be party 
to these stereotypes that uh, women would say, no, 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 uh, my child, you are, this is your husband, you must cooperate. Now, even if you are beaten, you must cooperate. And I think that is the context within which we must look at it. Just to latch on to what you've just said then, does this, does this relationship and this tension between the, the history that you've just traced as, as far as how, how, how this idea of, of the relationship between men and women has been manifested in, uh, in, religious, in religious conversation and the ways in which the societal sort of ideas around the, the, the various roles that men and women play back then versus in modern um, society today, this tension between that and the ways in which um, these matters are addressed whenever they come up from a legal aspect. Do you see a link between the supposed failure um, by our country's justice system, our country's police service, to address these issues with the urgency that they need because so many people believe in these roles that have been instilled um, in them for, for as long a time as they have been? Yes, I mean, look, you know, the, the law doesn't operate in a vacuum. And I think if you were to characterize this and call it a culture, because the culture means there's this practice, there's this acceptance or understanding that, you know, a, a, a women's position is this one, and they must accept this type of thing. This is why, for instance, and, and we'll come to the, the, the new Sexual Offenses Act, now, probably one of the best pieces of legislation across the, across the world. But why is it ineffective? It's because a woman walks into a police station, has been abused, whether sexual or otherwise, and meets this very indifferent man that is surprised. Why are you complaining? Is he your boyfriend? I mean, the, the first question they will ask this woman, is he your man? Is he your... But he's your husband. I mean, can't you go and solve it? And then you have this many other problems that says, for instance, in cases of uh, abuse of children, uh, you will hear, now let's talk about this as a family, you know. Uh, you go to church, the same problem, and, and we have seen the emergence of extreme and aggravated forms of abuse of the girl child in the church. I mean, we have seen so-called pastors grooming these children. And don't think there are no church elders there. Don't think there are no Christian mothers in the church, but the attitude and the culture says, let's not talk about it the legal way. Let's talk about it, you know, you'll embarrass the bishop, you'll embarrass the, the pastor, you know. Now, and you have also found that some women do participate. I mean, if, you, if I give you an example of the case in Port Elizabeth of, of this pastor, and there are two women accused who were so instrumental in, in allegedly in the crimes that were committed. So there is a direct relationship until and unless we move the mindset to a full acceptance, because at the moment I don't think we have a full acceptance. We have a full acceptance of the equality of men and women. Now, men and women are not the same, but they are equal. I'm probably more physically stronger than my female counterpart. No doubt about it. That is how physiologically we are structured. But there's nothing that says mentally I'm superior uh, to my female counterpart. You know, there are a lot of things a woman can be a president. Uh, it doesn't matter. I always say to people, I've been in a law classroom. I've had women, uh, girls who were in the same class, and some performed far better than all the males combined. Now, the question is, now we leave the classroom. 
we now in practice. Suddenly they are inferior. It's, an, it's a mindset issue. And, and until we deal with the issue of the mindset and the full acceptance of this principle of equality, then we'll have a problem. Because it also means that the training, which might also be provided, is becoming obsolete. It's not serving a purpose. Because this man sits here and he says, look, I'm a man. I need to understand why you are complaining about another man. And he thinks about how he beat his wife in the morning. And he now wants to understand how. This one is also complaining that he has been beaten. Then these women are a problem. Now, that is the difficulty that we are settled with. It doesn't matter whether they are judicial officers. The attitude might still be the same. And that is where the fundamental problem is. I, I keep on saying that, you know, the struggle for the total emancipation of women is not the struggle of the women. The women are the victims. If we decide as men to emancipate the women, they will be emancipated in a matter of minutes. We have decided to perpetuate the historical injustice of subjugating them. So we think it is appropriate. Now, if I take you forward, we have the Constitution which guarantees equality. Section 9 of the Constitution says all are equal. Now the question is, what is the meaning of equality? I call gender-based violence the modern form of slavery because women live in fear. Women can't dress the way they want. They can't walk where they want. You, they can't go to entertainment areas without being administered um, uh, uh, drugs, you know, the, the, you know, this sex date. Uh, drugs, you know, they can't do that. Women can't say we're going to travel between Pretoria and Johannesburg at two o'clock in the morning without being abused or without being harassed, even if they were to be stopped. And I have no doubt that when, if police were to stop me as a man drunk and, and they were to stop a female driver who's drunk, the conversation would be different. You know, now those are the realities. So whether we have got the good laws or not, it's not the starting point. The starting point is whether we have the correct attitude towards the implementation of the good laws. Let me give an example. The new Sexual uh, Offenses Act makes provision that victims of uh, gender-based violence must be supported by the state. So, and, and, and support doesn't mean giving a hug. It means providing resources, providing facilities to enable victims to speak out, to have these cases processed, to have statements taken properly, to have the prosecutions effectively conducted, to be provided with psychological support. How much of that do we have? Now, just to latch on to that very quickly, um, my colleague Ayanda brought this up in the conversation that he had with Mr. Chabu Baloy mm. from the Commission for Gender Equality. I would like to get your insight on the link between the, the relatively low con uh, conviction rates and the, 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 the how the stats seem to indicate a lack of action being taken against this issue, the scourge of gender-based violence. The relationship between that and how men and perpetrators of this violence may feel further emboldened to commit these criminal acts. What is, in your view, how strong is that, that link between what the stats dictate as far as how little action is being taken against this issue and how men feel emboldened by this lack of action being taken? And how, how much further back do you think that will set us back in, in successfully addressing this issue and making it a thing of the past? 
you know, we, we don't even talk about the extent to which matters are not even reported. You're talking about the statistics mm. of the small percentage of cases that are reported. But there's millions of cases which are not even reported. And one of the things that is glaring is that it is discouraging for women to come forward. You see, the whole system of patriarchy has got this strong element of shame in it. Makes women feel ashamed to report that they are being abused. Because society will say, what did you want at the taxi rank in the miniskirt? What were you doing at the club or at the tavern? You know, uh, it's the gender roles. You, you are a woman, you're supposed to be at home. So you were basically at the wrong place. And that's how this happened. And this emboldens this abuse thing. And, and I've highlighted the fact that there are all these funny mechanisms of solving or attending to these problems. You go to a police station, as a woman you want to report, they say, okay, can we call your husband and talk about it? Okay? But you are there to report a crime. That on its own immediately says to you, this matter is not going to be attended. Because what happens if the woman says, listen, I'm here to report an offense. This man has assaulted me. I want him to be arrested. Now, this officer has already said to you, no, man, this is a family thing. Can we talk about it? Can we call him and talk about it? You have already discouraged the victim. You know, there, there are a lot of bureaucratic failures. Uh, there's probably lack of capacity as well, both in terms of the investigation. Uh, and, and if you look generally the environment in the police station, I mean, I walked into one police station in, in Pretoria. I honestly don't regard it as a police station. And I, I went in there, and I, I was even asking myself, I, I was there for something else, uh, but I look at this environment, and there are these police officers, and unfortunately, most of them female, sitting both sides of the counter, and just having these wild chats about things that have got nothing to do with the work that they're there. And I was asking myself a question. What happens if a woman were to, who's traumatized were to walk in here seeking help, and she's received by that environment, you know? And hear some of the conversations that are taking place there. What encouragement does she have uh, to to proceed to complain? You know, and, and those are the difficulties that you have. You you go to a police station and you say, "There's the guy that abused me," and the police say, "We don't have a van." And this guy now gets to know that, "Hey, I think I'm in trouble here," and he disappears. Three months down the line, he has not yet been arrested. Now, the issue of efficiency in dealing with the cases of gender-based violence is what encourages the scourge of gender-based violence. You know? So even if we were to have only those that are reported uh, properly dealt with, it will encourage others to come through. There's an issue that was raised you know, during the hard lockdown. And because we are sort of a denialist society, we've probably not spoken about it. And there was a question of how much gender-based violence occurred during the period of the lockdown, where people could not you know, freely move. Uh, we've never spoken about those issues. We don't want to talk about 
what happens in the churches. We don't want to talk about what happens in the schools. You know, as if you know for now, for instance, the, the law requires the teachers and the adults in the schools to report any acts of uh, violence towards uh, uh, girl children, for instance, in the schools. But listen, those who will report will mostly likely be victimized. Uh, the system will do nothing about it. In the same way that our system does nothing about whistleblowers. The people who say, who report corruption, who alert us about, they become victims. They lose their jobs, you know. And that is, is the same principle. So there's an there's a ethical and moral problem in our society which becomes encouraging, emboldened by the inefficiencies that, uh, uh, that uh, we experience in our system. Now, everything that you've just mentioned lends itself to the political element of this very contentious discussion that we're having surrounding the scourge of gender-based violence and the role that toxic masculinity has to play in, in this conversation. I remember a conversation I was having with a very, a very well-learned female friend of mine yeah. um, whose, whose, whose perspective on the recent round of local government elections that we've just come from and the, the relatively low voter turnout that emerged from that, um, that, that period of local government elections and how that was reflected in what she, um, what, 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 in, in explaining why she decided not to go cast her vote. She um, expounded on the fact that she didn't feel any kind of confidence that any of the political parties competing for her vote had any sort of concrete plan in place to address gender-based violence. So I'd like to pose this question to you as far as the role that our country's politics has to play in this conversation, the ways in which our country's political parties can, um, can, can, can Take, can, can provide insight on this topic, put plans in, in place to address this issue once and, for, uh, once and for all. Do they, these political parties, feel as if these, these issues can be used as a, as a ploy to get more voters on their side? Or are they in any way incentivized to address this issue and put plans in place to attract the voters that they would like for their various political parties in order to contribute to this issue being addressed? Look. I think it's a, it's, it's a very sad situation, I must say. You see, it doesn't matter what the policies of the DA, ANC, EFF, UDM, whatever the case may be, but there are things which are national interests. There are things which, regardless of what political views or agenda you have, we have to agree on. Now, the sadness of our nation is that we could agree in, in the 90s, 1994, to transition from apartheid to a constitutional democracy in a peaceful way. But we cannot agree that an, a thing like corruption, a thing like gender-based violence, are killing our nation. It's, it's got, doesn't matter whether you are an ANC member, whether you are a TA member, Every woman is a potential victim of gender-based violence. Even if the ANC were to have a female president, that president is vulnerable to gender-based violence. Now, we can't even come together as a nation, uh, whether it's civil society or political parties, and agree that there are non-negotiables in our nation 
for instance, gender-based violence, as I say, I call it a modern form of slavery. It should, in my view, be at the top. Of the, there's nothing, we will not have economic transformation. I hear people talk about land. Um, there's no meaningful uh, 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 acquisition of land without addressing the plight of women. You can go now to some traditional communities. Women are not allowed to own land. So we, we're still talking about it, but it's not just about not being allowed to own land. It's about the level of deprivation. Their voice is muted. They can't speak. You, if you can't even own land here, what is it that you can talk about? You can't complain about anything. So I'm saying that it's not about a voting issue. It's about a national interest and a national responsibility. And, and I think I, I'm hard-pressed to say uh, we may be lacking in the correct leadership uh, across the board. I still want to hear, and I don't think any single political party can stand up and say it has acquitted itself in its fight against gender-based violence. You can even see in the political parties themselves. You can see the, the composition of the leadership. You can see the role of women in those parties, that it's, it remains insignificant. And, and, but I must say that my insistence is that the, the emancipation of women is not the job of women, because they are not the oppressors. We are the oppressors. We must set them free. Um, but I'm saying that if you look at the total structure, um, you will see that uh, there's very little. I think people want political power, and they are talking about things that may be far above what we need to be dealing with. Uh, as I say, yes, we need to get the land back, no question about it. But what is, how is this land back going to benefit women who are subjected to this incessant abuse? You know? So for me, that's the, let, let me take you back. Today is the birthday of my grand-aunt Charlotte McClecker. And many years ago, she said that the difficulty we have in our society is when men have a problem with women knowing and exercising their rights. And that is the, the central problem that we have, that unless we liberate women to know and exercise their rights, and at the same time we participate in enforcing the exercise of their rights, we are nowhere near dealing with this issue of inequality, gender inequality and gender-based violence. Indeed. Now, I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up in the interest of achieving a degree of objectivity in the way in which we conduct this conversation. Yeah. But I would like to get your insight on uh, this matter of false accusations yeah. of gender-based violence, which always comes up as a counter whenever this conversation is being had yeah. by the broader public. Yeah. What in, can you take us through the legal recourse that um, people who are found um, guilty of of manipulating the, 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 the mechanisms and the ends of the law in addressing this issue, people who are found to have falsely accused someone of gender-based violence, what kind of legal action do those people have, regardless of how minuscule and how rare those instances of false accusations may be? Well, firstly, let me say they are not necessarily rare uh, because there's also the downside of this whole thing is that you know, this whole issue of gender gets weaponized for malicious purposes. Now, to answer your question, it depends on where this happens. If 
somebody were to walk into a police station and report a, a case of gender-based violence, it'd be raped or assault, whatever the case may be, which is false, that person stands to be charged with perjury, which is making a false statement under oath is a criminal offense. So that person can actually pay the consequences of that. It may be that the statement is made outside of a criminal process. Uh, whoever the allegations are made against would still have the right to take legal action now uh, and sue for damages. So, so it's a question of rights come with responsibility. So it's not as if uh, because you have a right to raise this issue of gender-based violence, then you must go around and make false accusations against other people. At a policy level, it's one of the major problems that we are confronted with. Because you, you, you stand up, you put resources to try and fight this particular case, only to find that this is all false and concocted and contrived. It becomes discouraging as well. It also undermines the plight of those people who are the real victims of gender-based violence. And I think, for me, there has to be some measure of more serious punishment uh, provided for in law for people who make these false accusations. Uh, and, and I think we need to deal decisively, not only with those who make false allegations, but for those who also abuse gender for other uh, uh, interests. Uh, you know, there are people who would come and say, I must be appointed here because I'm a woman. Uh, but when you check, you find that there are many other women far better qualified and far more competent who should be appointed. So uh, that abuse of gender is a, is a major problem and it's, it's a setback. Indeed, and I think that's a great place for us to leave this discussion. Advocate Muridi Mamanya joining us here on the Manhood Simplified podcast to help us explore the legal aspects of this conversation surrounding the scourge of gender-based violence in South Africa, the role that toxic masculinity has to play in the presence of the scourge in this country, and the work that still needs to be done from multiple levels of society, both above and on the same level as the legal aspect of this conversation. Advocate, thank you so much for taking your time to join us and I really hope that um, the conversation that we've been having over the course of the brief period of time we've been able to spend with you might inspire someone watching to put the to put the plans and mechanisms in place to be the change that we need in society so again thank you so much for joining us thank you